I know, and that's the funny thing. Bradley, is that, like, Bradley all Newell the bands that they impeccable. Yeah, all taste. of all the bands that they cover, sample, and like listen to are all artists that like these like classist elitist fucking you know assholes who like write for fucking stereo gum or whatever like would approve of <laughs> you know and in fact they know they know more about i yeah. in fact i feel like their cuts are too deep well i mean that oh yeah people don't re- reflect do, people writing about them don't know the and you've talked about this before, like the the depth and complexity and nuance of their citational practice. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. It's like the the whole the whole complaint about like, oh they're like frat white boy reggae, and it's like they're using like rhythm. They're like taking rhythms and like the culture of like reuse out of like Jamaican culture, and like actually in a weird way respecting it by like by you know incorporating those same sort of methods, and also like also showcasing their own deep fucking knowledge for reggae and like dance hall and all that by being able to like pull out those rhythms and like use them and make reference to them which like half these people writing probably don't know fucking anything about <laughs> you know it's it's uh, yeah it's 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 wild it's wild but that we can save that for <laughs> some other time <laughs> so welcome welcome back to money for nothing uh the podcast of music and capitalism and sublime uh, <laughs> I'm Sam Backer. With me, as always, is the ghost of Bradley Noel. <laughs> He's always with me. He's always with me. Uh, yeah, today we're talking about posthumous albums. In the past year, there have been a number of posthumous albums, unfortunately, tragically, of like really amazing artists whose lives have been cut way too short. And, you know, we've mentioned this before in previous episodes. And we really kind of wanted to do an episode on posthumous albums but not so much necessarily about you know the albums themselves but more kind of like about how the industry approaches it and you know there's plenty of plenty of stuff written about these artists who passed too soon um about like their music and their legacy and everything but there's not a lot written about like how like the industry like approaches these kind of albums and goes about like marketing and and i guess solidifying these artists sort of legacy uh, so we're gonna it's gonna be a little bit of a freewheeling episode because like I said there's not a lot written about it we don't got any interviews it's just just us kind of like talking this stuff out and so maybe an interesting place to start is is that I, you know I have been guilty of criticizing the holy in reverence to capital A album on a past episode our one about greatest hits albums I kind of criticized the idea of the album and and its necessity as this this holy commodity in the music in music circles so when we talk about the posthumous album you know it, it's a little bit different I think the more I've been thinking about the, when leading up to this episode where it kind of takes on the you know like a sort of different these different features where it really becomes like all we have of this artist like we have like everything they came out beforehand and then this is almost like this weird closure you know because we don't have rumors of a new album or a single or collaborations or you know who they're dating or the tabloids or anything and so we really like look to that album as a you know like this is all we know and like we dig into it and we like try to figure out like <laughs> what they're saying and codes and like learn more about them but but then like you know i've been thinking about that also in our current situation where like may in our contemporary times where albums are kind of becoming like like less important as we've also mentioned and yet there does seem to be in my opinion and i'm curious what your opinion is sam there does seem to be a, a still this necessity for like we need to have like 
the 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 final say the period like the, you know we need like some last something from this artist that we can kind of like have closure about the fact that their careers that like, come to an end so so we're going to talk um over the course of the show about a couple different kinds of posthumous albums all of which i think have like kind of different connotations like you're saying and, and i think what you're talking about here to get a little bit more specific is like the the album in process often right it's like the album that the album that the artist was recording when they passed. So an example, recent example is like Circles by Mac Miller or um, the the Juice World album. And right. and like you know, there's like huge legacy of this. You know, there's like the Elliott Smith album and like you know all these different albums. Yeah, and sometimes it's just like a song. Like I'm remembering like Nirvana with their their last single that came out like however long after they. After the after Kurt Cobain passed, that single kicks ass. That's a great Nirvana song. It's good, yeah. It's a good single. That's yeah, a really good definitely. single. Um, they recorded it in like six hours. Like wrote and recorded it. It was cr- crazy how fast they. But see, even this conversation right now, it's like this. Like what we're saying, we're like, whoa, 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 like was it the last? You know, like it's just like I don't know. It's like we need it, or at least it's like it. It seems as least at least that the industry feels a necessity. Maybe not fans. I think fans as well, but you know, the industry feels this necessity to sort of put like an exclamation point or like a period at the end of like a career, you know, like a kind of bookend in a sense. Yeah. And and I do think that those kind of albums, I mean, it it's funny, right? It's like, because of this, um, you know, this very complicated relationship that people have with musicians that's about the music, but it's about more than just the music. And then when they pass, it's like, there is a, you know, there's a very specific kind of mourning that happens. And I do think that both as kind of like a, a potential cash cow, right? Like when major artists die, their albums often sell very well, especially if there's a new album featuring new material, especially as sadly was in the case of a number of the rappers who, who passed away in the last year, um, year and a half, two years, who were on their commercial ascendancy. So, I mean, but I do feel like the, the, the emotional importance of that album is like, it's, it's, those albums are processed like as part of the broader grieving process for those artists and so in some ways like i feel like there's where sometimes albums like you're saying are kind of um they're put out over a series of singles they're put out in in different ways there is a desire i feel like by the public especially if that album is fairly completed to like not think about like album as a process like album as the production and think of it as like this is like a more or less finished version of what would have been a finished complete solid work of art that is a production of like a singular author that was this talent who's passed away yeah and it's like it's like this like final sort of insight into you know what they're what they were you know what they were doing when they when they unfortunately like their life was cut short but in a weird way i have to say like you know there is also how much of that is manufactured and how much of that is like also marketing not to be really extremely cynical about this but you know how much is even our desire as fans for this something that is put forth by you know, uh, a really keen marketing scheme, <laughs> but, and, and also, and also taken advantage of and also capitalized on. No, I, I completely agree. And actually, I feel like, um, kind of like a different take on this, like the phenomenon of posthumous records is the way, and I think some of the weirdness around them is the way that some of the weirdness that surrounds and can surround posthumous records, I think is the way that they actually challenge, they get it exactly what you're saying, right? that they are a reflection and a product of these marketing schemes and these corporate mechanics and that in their weirdness uh they can actually challenge like the overall field of relationships 
that we assume as music consumers exists between like artists, the music that's put out on labels and fans as consumers. So for instance, like I've been thinking about like, why is a posthumous album feel different? So like a posthumous album is in like an album of purportedly new music feel different than like a album by a musician who's passed away. Like I've got tons of records that are by dead musicians and they don't, and the the musician is equally the musician whose voice I'm hearing or uh, instruments I'm hearing is equally dead, whether or not the music was released after they died, but they feel different. And more than that, like it feels different. A posthumous record feels different than like a archival find from an artist. One has a certain like ghoulishness attached to it like it's someone who's like both dead and alive at the same time and one of them is like oh this is tape from so and so these are the unreleased sessions from so and so and i think part of it is like how are these albums being like situated by the record companies is this viewed as like part of a back catalog that's being issued for the first time or is this somehow like like live or new or like in like the mainstream of this artist discography as like a new work and all of that is like its connotations and almost none of that like actually has that much to do with the music and i think it totally shapes how people think about these things so you're talking more about what i guess i would call the album in process when the artists passed away like they were in the they're in the middle because 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 you because you made a distinction between finding a b-side or like a demo tape and like the posthumous album itself and so i just want to like because because one thing we are going to talk about has how there's like different posthumous styles of posthumous albums but like w- the one you're talking about right now are you like kind of talking about that uh the sort of like the mac miller or like the sort of like elliot smith style where like they were in the process of like making the album versus like oh here's just like a bunch of demos and like old archival stuff that we found from them that you haven't heard what i guess is what i'm saying is that like i think the differences between those things are often a lot thinner than yeah it, you know than actually exists right like musicians when they're recording stuff are making tons of demos these songs can be yeah, tweaked yeah. in an infinite number of times it's not like 19 64 where it's like this is the song and the band's going to go in and do takes and if like they're going to do four takes of it and maybe put some overdubs on it or maybe not but like if you don't have like all the band members in the room like you can't make the track it's like no you they this rap you know mac miller was fine-tuning the beats for a year right i, I don't know if that's yeah. true i don't know that much about his like workflow but like that could easily be true and so i actually feel like whether it's a posthumous record or a collection of demos is a lot about like how it's situated in the production flow of the release and like the record industry more generally and less about how how done or how conceptualized. I mean, it has something or, to do with that, but it has less with it. Oh, it like reveals like something about how labels and like the industry at large, a one way in which they approached like, music that comes out after an artist suddenly dies and, and i guess i've been i've mentioned it a couple times so maybe I'll, I'll just dive in a little bit but like elliot smith's from a basement on a hill i remember that there was a lot of controversy after it came out because the label and the people that were assigned i believe it was like two producers were like assigned to like put together the rest of that album which he was working on when he took his own life we're like we read all his notes 
we you know we like went through all the music and we feel like this is like the closest approximation of his vision that we're like offering you and then like people that were working with him more directly when he was still alive were like no like i wouldn't have done it this way like elliot wanted that way and everything and it's just interesting because i feel like that controversy is a, even in itself is a little bit flimsy right because like he's like he he left an uh, like a bunch of unfinished work and we have no idea like how it would have ended up but there's just even the gesture and the effort that like okay well we need to get in there and we need to like like present something that is like the closest to what we feel like would be true to what Elliot wanted like even that effort i feel like reveals something about like the way in which like the industry like approaches these kind of albums no totally and i think more generally like what, what i was saying before about the way i feel like posthumous records and some of the easiness uneasiness about posthumous records is actually a it's actually more about how they're they're similar to normal records rather than how they're different to normal records yeah. because i yeah. feel like we know how records are made right like artists have some but not full input over what comes out a lot of how it's understood and functions like as it's received through the culture is about marketing. It's about features. It's about promotional yeah, pushes. Totally. It's about the context in which the song is listened to that records and modern music is not like the product of like a single solitary genius who like sits yeah. in their house and like writes their great American novel. It's like, <laughs> a, it's like a Hollywood movie. It's like a team yeah, of people. Oftentimes. Yeah. Of all, oftentimes. Yeah. Like which who are all collaborating in different ways. And so like, I feel like the uneasiness about a posthumous record, like what you're talking about with Elliot Smith, actually, like, <laughs> it's not that what's that would have happened anyway. Like, yeah, Elliot Smith yeah. probably didn't have, maybe Elliot Smith did, but like many people don't have full creative control over yeah. the final process right. of their music. Like, see the entire history of rock from the 70s and the 80s. And so, like, it's actually not different. And so I feel like, the, the concern about that lack of control that an artist has over their posthumous releases reflects like a broader set of uncertainties that like maybe none of the artists have full control over their records, in which case like the relationship that we have generated to these artists through these records is actually not with them really. It's actually like yeah, a much more yeah. complicated set of relationships. And like, I feel like yeah. posthumous records get at some of that uneasiness like maybe this is all like well, a constructed illusion of relationship and like yeah it pulls back the veil exactly yeah it, yeah it, pull, it pulls back the veil on the process of the album <laughs> and then and then like kind of like pokes holes in our entire perception of like who that person was and who that artist was and our personal like sort of relationship with that with not that artist but like the music in which they put out and then the persona in which was their sort of their public persona in which we whatever gravitated like towards. maybe if i like this elliot smith album and he didn't fully make it then like but i still have this feeling in relationship to the sounds i'm hearing maybe my relationship to the sounds from the previous albums also was not with like a direct connection to Elliot Smith, <laughs> given the fact that Elliot Smith wasn't alive to oversee the construction of this album. So he, by definition, couldn't have had full creative right. control over this album. Yeah, maybe, that's, maybe that speaks to what you're saying about why it feels different. And maybe because it feels different because it kind of pulls back that veil and kind of like reveals 
I guess, how the sausage is made in a way. And because the artist isn't there to give their stamp of approval, like we feel like sort of awkward about it and like have like a different relationship with it. So that's kind of one Pashuas album, which I guess I'm going to, I guess I'm calling the like album in process, I guess. And, but there's also Pashuas albums that are, there was no album in process and it's kind of like, like, heavy on the features and like a lot of people are involved and like those were like kind of have like a also have like a strange sort of disconnect from the original uh artist but because like there was no vision there was no album in, in process i guess you were sending me links to you know uh michael jackson songs quote unquote uh featuring like akon and like Yo, the, the, the akon, weird ones. The akon <laughs> michael jackson song is a trip it's yeah. so much akon and you you forget i feel like here in the year of our lord 2021 you forget how much akon there could be on a track at one point in time like we're, <laughs> we're down a fairly low level of akon per track um but like in 2008 2009 2010 there was a lot of akon and there's there's a lot of akon on this track <laughs> yeah well and like but isn't part of that also because like what do we have like from that we have from michael who like wasn't in the process of making an album as far as i'm aware or was like maybe like early stages you know so michael jackson's actually a really interesting example because i feel like it gets at a lot of these dynamics and and just to like take a step back before kind of diving in a little bit more. I mean, I really feel like past that, like they're currently work an artist is currently working on an album, and we're gonna try to like shepherd it to completion. Then there's the artist dies, and there's material in a studio or a variety of studios, and then there's like a lot of different approaches to what to do with it and i really feel like it's interesting to think about different artists in the way that their i guess estates and record labels have approached that question because it really reflects their understanding of the value of the music and the value of the artist and so different artists that have from different backgrounds or different musics at different times at different points in their career like that equation is different and i feel like it's different in a number of revealing ways. And so just like, there's definitely like, there's the like, how many of these can we sell? There's like the, how much is, yeah. how much is left in the, in yeah. the, 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 the vault, so to speak. There's the like chart, potential chartability of yeah. pieces or scraps from artists. And then there's also like the, the more generally, like it's like the potential value of the brand of the artist yeah. and how that relates to more or less of their music being released. Yeah. What are some examples of that? I think that's a really great way of kind of like breaking down the sort of different approaches. So, okay. So a good example, I mean, and I think that like, it's important to think about like uh, how these are, who gets what kind of treatment seems to me to be like clearly about in what regard and what kind of commercial track record does this style of music have? And then also the kind of classic power relations that go around like race and the record industry. So it's like, seems to me because part of who does what to what dead artist is about like how set up was their legal infrastructure? Like who owned what rights? Are there a bunch of rights holders or is there one right holder? And given the kind. Yeah. Is there a, is there a will that like, you know, dictates any of this? Or, or like, is there a singular control over the mu- the musician's catalog even when they're alive? Yeah. Because when they're alive, like, 
if you've had kind of a, a torturous path through the record industry, a bunch of different people can have rights to your music. Yeah. Um, and maybe if you're alive, you're not that worried about it because the newest music is presumed to be the most commercial. And also, again, given the, like the race dynamics that this is often the more exploitative relationships to posthumous records are more likely to happen, it seems to me, to black musicians where like oftentimes the the, the record industry was not thinking about them as like a long-term value proposition. Yeah. They were thinking of them as a quick buck and then very much treating their catalog as a quick buck, which again was like, oh, we are focused on you now. We think that you're going to sell a lot of records now. It doesn't matter what your past is. Um, and then they die, and then the past is all they have. So so an example of this is uh, Tupac, Yeah, right? Great example. Is, yeah. is, so Tupac is on Interscope, I believe. Then he's on Death Row. The legal negotiations around uh, Mr. Knight are like famously <laughs> difficult to put difficult. it politely. <laughs> um, it's unclear who owns what. Suge Knight, for those who didn't catch that reference. <laughs> and so, yeah, so like after Tupac dies, uh, is murdered, it's just kind of a, a free for all. There's one project under the name Machiavelli that is like on its way it's basically done and then there's just this like torrent of releases um like a number of releases i don't know how like four or five in the couple years after that just seems like they're trying to capitalize on his career uh and coming out from if i'm correct coming out from both death row and Inter interscope yeah so it's yeah, they're coming out on both interscope and death row then there's also a lot of litigation between tupac's mother who is running his estate and death row and then where she's supposed to have gotten everything that's in the vaults but then death row goes bankrupt is being sold to um another entertainment one media it's another record company is boosting its sale price allegedly by claiming that it has unreleased material in the vaults. Then there's a whole other law set of lawsuits before finally the um the state gets like full control over the material. My understanding is Interscope cuts a deal with them because then Interscope can keep releasing these records. But there's a sense that instead of trying to do like a um like a museum curatorial approach to someone who's like one of the most important artists in the history of 20th century music. There's sort of like a cash grab approach where there's a ton of releases coming out from shady record executives because they're trying to cash in on this guy while he's still white hot. And what's like fascinating is that that's also literally word for word what happens to Jimi hendrix like it pretty much exactly the same hendrix also has a kind of complicated route through the record industry he's got ties to managers who are allegedly mobbed up he signed some really bad early contracts and then is like on a major and they're still paying off these like early contracts with people who claim they have rights to his music he's going in new artistic directions while also having a kind of tempestuous social life 
there this is also where like he's trying to break from his management days before he dies which uh kind of sparks generations of conspiracy theories about whether or not he was murdered also similar to tupac also similar to well we know we know he was murdered but like who murdered him and whether or not he was still alive there was a lot of like he's in cuba he's like you know he's coming back and so similarly hendrix goes out at that's at the absolute peak of his popularity and there's a stream an absolute like torrent of hendrix bootlegs and like there's an amazing Rolling Stone article from 76. So seven years after Hendrix's death that just like goes through all of the shady things that have happened with his estate in the first couple of years. Lawyers approaching, ripping off his dad, starting like weird supposed nonprofit foundations that they never see money from. They're releasing tons and tons and tons yeah. of like live material. There's also... Go back to our, our previous episode. There's 40 bootleg live albums released by fairly well-established bootleggers in the year, a couple years after his death, which is enough, circulate enough that it probably made a dent in his sales. Yeah. It's also just not in any kind of control, again, from like a curatorial standpoint. And then even more famously, um, Alan Douglas is the a producer who had been working closely with Hendrix prior to his death. And it helped him kind of set up sessions with John McLaughlin, which are like a, a little disappointing. You'd hope they'd be amazing. My sense is they're not that great, actually. <laughs> Just my dad, who does have a bootleg tape of that one. <laughs> um, Douglas just kind of is like releasing material. And in the mid 70s, kind of famously or infamously, produces two records with Hendrix guitar parts and singing totally chopped up into new songs with new overdubbed backing tracks which go to the top 10 actually because they sound like studio albums from the mid 70s uh and so they have a much more contemporary spin on things they are now totally scrubbed from the internet you can't you can hear like a track from them but uh, they're really popular at the time and they kind of split the critical community some of whom thinks this is pretty good <laughs> Uh, fans really like it actually but other people feel like it's disrespecting his legacy to be like doing new things to his music that he had not thought about so, um, so sort of like tie the thread between what you're saying here with like tupac and hendrix and many others it's like this extremely exploitative use of these artists career that is like really all about like making a profit and not concerned with somehow tying a bow or like putting into focus like their legacy and their career it's like you know and and of course like with a legacy of racism in this country and and elsewhere it's just it's it's just like another example of like instead of actually taking care of these people of these artists estates and thinking about what to put out and how it like speaks to their vision and their legacy it's just like how do we make a fucking quick buck and it just becomes all about like money and it kind of like all of a sudden becomes like less about the artists themselves and just like what they produce. No, absolutely. It's also interesting though, if we trace the Hendrix story forward, right? Um, through the seventies, eighties to the nineties in the mid nineties, the Hendrix family gets control of the masters and the tapes. Yeah. And it's interesting to actually put the Hendrix story and the Tupac story together there 
when when they kind of run up against each other chronologically because it also reflects the ways that the record industry has now 30 or 40 years later had understood the enduring value of 60s era art and the way that effective packaging could continue to make that valuable and at the same time was clearly in it for a fast buck with a rapper where that music was not understood in the same way at all and so the hendrix family gets back their rights they scrub discontinue pull all of these like weird 70s and 80s compilations and releases they go back to the tapes and start producing this string of really highly regarded like this is what Hendrix was working on. These are alternate albums constructed from sessions, much more like historically argued releases. And in some ways kind of rehabilitate the Hendrix discography. Um, and again, I think they're able to do that because in some ways like thinking about rock music had gotten to a place where that kind of attention and that kind of care and that kind of value was seen in this music. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see like, what becomes of uh, Tupac's discography and if it like something kind of like similar, because I mean, I remember just on a personal note, like I remember all those albums coming out after he died and it was just so confusing. And it also kind of like fueled a lot of, a lot of these like rumors that he was like still alive. Cause you're like, how is all this music coming out? And it was just really strange and confusing. And it like, I feel like, Maybe it was only temporarily, but I feel like it kind of like marred his legacy and kind of like it became more about like le- less about like the music and his vision and more about like uh, un- his unfortunate murder. But then also these like strange sort of like conspiracy theories that like he was actually still alive and all this stuff. And it's just yeah, it's really unfortunate. And, like I hope that there could be some sort of crystal crystallization maybe of his legacy in a better way. But then again, the question becomes like who's in charge of that? Who's the one to do that? You know, and once again, it becomes a marketing thing. It becomes like the outside hands are starting to come in and like and influence that. And once again, we're like kind of pulling back the curtain and kind of seeing like how things are done. And it might once again, as we're kind of going back to like what we were saying earlier in this episode, begin to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable about how these things work. Um, But like maybe uh, maybe it might be worthwhile to start diving in next into like just some like examples of like some posthumous albums that like maybe we just kind of want to dive into Again, this is like a little dark given the way his reputation has changed since these posthumous albums were released. It's uh, is what was something we were mentioning just before is these Michael Jackson posthumous records. There are two of them: Michael, which is released in 2010, pretty shortly after his death, and then even stranger, Escape, X Escape, both of which are really interesting because they are. Something that you see occasionally, and it's kind of, I would say, a semi-genre of, of posthumous albums, which are the, this is not, I mean, he'd been working on this stuff forever. His previous album had been 2001's Invincible. So, like, presumably, like, he had been working on some stuff in the, I don't know, five or six years uh, till his death. But these were not, like, the basically completed White Hot thing. And more, more specifically, they were 
taking these vocals and tying it to current at that moment chart-topping artists in an effort to produce new hits for Michael Jackson. And so it, they bring in like Tim. But really like the record company. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, they're using Michael Jackson to produce hits for the record company. So they bring in Timbaland. Yeah. They bring in Akon. They bring in like a whole. Like his brand, basically. Just like his name. Like, you know, like it's so weird. They bring in 50 Cent in 2010 for a very weird song called Monster, which like really, 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 really did not age well. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, um. I can't make another day featuring Lenny Kravitz. It actually came out pretty well. Uh, Lenny sounds great there. Uh, <laughs> no, but but there is a funny thing where it's like a very different approach to, like the idea that this artist has like, it it like is a current pop star still somehow. Similarly, some of the mm-hmm. Biggie albums, uh, the posthumous Biggie albums, like the ones with um, Manny Fresh tracks with like Manny Fresh and Eminem, um, is this idea that like they're still despite their death a current pop star and in some ways this is some of the most ghoulish stuff because it's like they had nothing to do with these collaborators (laughs) and like but somehow their brand and their sonic identity is strong enough to like continue selling potentially and i think the biggie one had some hits on it um so like just its own there's like a, a maybe another approach to like not necessarily the pop star where it's like the final album, but like the pop star as like continuing business enterprise almost. Yeah, no, yeah, the pop stars continuing business enterprise, which they have absolutely like they just become like a tool in the process. It feels like to me, where it's just like like oh yeah, he's got star power. He has you know like we could do this and we can make a shit ton of money, and like you're basically just sort of like cashing in on their death in a sense, and that's another strange aspect to it that it's like the 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 death itself becomes you know and this has been implied and everything else i've said but like the death itself becomes this strange tool to be used for selling these albums and the marketing in it, in it you know and it's it's just so weird it's just like it's very bizarre and like, i think that kind of is like another aspect that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable as like fans or like as people approaching this like critically it's like how do you approach that these kind of albums like you know when you know like this wasn't an, this was not an album in process these were not tracks like in process or like not really you know and it's like this is a complete manufacturing of like their f- associates and friends and record label and like you know p diddy or whatever and it's like i don't is this can i approach this like i guess what it you know an interesting thing yeah, what I was gonna say is like, can I approach this like sort of like free of like any kind of like moral consciousness, like which is like kind of a way in which I usually want to, as a person, approach my music and approach my art is like you know I it, it's uh it, it can be often like an escape and like all these other you know reasons that we like to go into music and it's like it's suddenly kind of reflecting back on us this this reality and this like real sort of world that. I don't want to be thinking about when I'm like listening to a Biggie song. I don't want to be thinking like, is this genuine? Is this something that he would want? Like, is this even him? Like, it's just, you know, these like strange sort of aspects and like, you know, maybe I'm repeating myself here, but it just, I think that like going into like, and and it feels, it feels, I guess, I guess like something oftentimes music can feel like very organic and natural no matter how much effort was put into it. And like, these things can like feel like overly manufactured as if like, you know like something's revealed to us that like we 
don't want to be sort of like gucked up in the music when we're listening to no, it. No, totally. I and mean, I also feel like, again, going back to my point earlier, I feel like there's a threat that like you want this music to feel immediate and not like it's the process of a thing. And if you know for a fact that it's the process of yeah. a thing, not only does it make that song feel weird, but when that song, as some of these songs do, kind of hits, right? Like, then yeah. you're like, oh, but like, what about the rest of this music that I'm trying to have this... Un, like this relationship to like all the rest of the music yeah. i'm trying to have this relationship to right I, I also wanted to think about um again like to try to get at this funny the, the 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 positioning of these albums um which is true for both like the biggie and the michael jackson albums where they're the posthumous biggie and the posthumous michael jackson albums where they're like trying to place it in relationship to nowness and like that's and like fashion and like the cutting edge yeah. of like pop music and that's what makes yeah. it posthumous because like the michael jackson album some of these are songs he'd been demoing for years and years and years and actually like if i don't know if you've ever listened to like the michael jackson michael jackson demos are astonishing like sure because yeah, he does yeah, these yeah, amazing multi-track things where he's singing all the instrumental parts like and he's composing right. it with a tape recorder and he's like beatboxing the beat yeah. and like they're amazing sonic things and clearly reflective like of his artistry however they don't sound like pop songs and yeah. so like i feel like a release of like michael jackson demos would be part of like a back catalog or like part of like a burnishing of an artistic legacy but it couldn't make it feel current and it's funny just like but they're equally i mean maybe it's maybe this is belaboring like a really obvious point that like music feels differently depending on what it's intended to do but it is fascinating to see just to what extent like the meaning of the music is determined by those like production and marketing decisions same thing yeah no and i completely agree with you and i and i kind of then it goes full circle for me and it gets back to like you know what i mentioned at the top of the show which i'm like some of these things it's like why do i need a full album of this (laughs) you know and it's like i'm thinking about sometimes the thinking about the format itself as an album where like maybe i would be a less offended or i would be like less you know weird feeling strangeness <laughs> when approaching this if it was like a single you know like hey this was like a really strong take he had written in his notes like you know possibly collaborate or whatever you know whatever it may be you know or you know like but like why like and the effort to just make an album just feels like such such an overt attempt at like a cash grab you know i almost would prefer something so outside of the like artist as they were and and then like instead of like this like attempt to put them in the now to do something like like remember that really bad Elvis track that went number one that was like took his vocals and like <laughs> yeah that was, that was like paired with like a really bad like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, like I'd almost just prefer something like that, like that, because that's so obviously like, okay. Like, this is so not anything Elvis even sounds like. It's like just a fucking sample at that point. But like, whatever. Like, I'd almost prefer that, like that, you know, than this like sort of like middling ground where like, like, well, you know, like <laughs> trying to like, w- like put hit put that artist who's like past like in the now. It's 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 very strange. It's very strange. So so one thing I wanted to, to just ask, um, before I guess we, we move on to uh maybe our mutual favorite posthumous record, <laughs> which is, I wonder if we could just spin out a little bit about the potential future 
of posthumous records given the way that music is made now. So I'm thinking about like, this didn't happen, but imagine that like, could you even possibly ever make an album? And B, like, couldn't you just release music? Like the amount of, I would guess that the amount of like total minutes of music in some form or other that was created in that album production process, even stuff that like was at a fairly high level is just enormous. Like you could be releasing cuts from that forever. Yeah, no, it, it, see, it, see, it seems like the record industry is, is going off of like what's worked in the past and like kind of has this formula which they keep repeating. And I think that, it, that the formula itself like should, should bear some criticism and, you know, like a, like a hard look at, you know, and I think that the, the, the question of maybe this, you know, the question of like whether or not like trying to put together some sort of like, you know, vision or whatever of like a possible album that this person like would have done versus just like a archival like dump of like what the music is, you know, maybe that's kind of like a better like maybe that's a better approach. And like, I think that like one example of that, I think was probably Nirvana, which like, I, I don't know if you recall, but I think that they put like a four CD box set of everything. Well, yeah. So they so it was so they dropped that new single, and it was tied to a greatest hits of Nirvana. Silly, whatever. Okay, but like, but then it was also tied to that like, four, yeah, like you said, like a four box set of just like everything, you know. And it's like okay, like that kind of makes like a little bit more sense. Like we're not trying to like piece together like like that guy did with Hendrix. We're not trying to like piece together you know a, a full album or whatever. It's like it's still part of a marketing scheme, but it feels like a little bit more organic. And like hey, here's the shining light of a song that was like well recorded and like mastered already, and we want to present it to you. You know, obviously, like to chart and to make money, but also it's like a kind of a way of like, hey, like, like, pay attention to this. Don't let it get buried in like the rubble of like, you know, what you know, bedroom one microphone, like, you know, in the corner recordings, like acoustic or whatever. You know, so I, I think that like, yeah, I, I, I'm actually kind of surprised that, you know, especially now, you know, as often the the ongoing conversation about like, you know, the importance of the album capital A, I'm surprised that like the record industry would even continue to do something like this. And I wouldn't be surprised in the future if maybe there are other approaches to that. Yeah. There's also, I mean, I think that the countervailing tendency to like the amount of music that's being produced is the pace, especially in rap music, right? like just the raw pace of production. I almost feel these, these trends are like at, at at total like 180 degree angle from each other, right? So thinking about like you're an artist and you're putting out four albums a year, right? Like maybe, I don't know if you are producing more, like recording more or less music than like Tupac did in 1996, but you're definitely releasing a lot more of it. Because you're just like feeding the machine, which means that for, you know, an artist like Little Little Peep, like there's some stuff in the tank, but yeah. Little Peep was releasing a lot of music. And a lot of what's been released since his death is like collections of SoundCloud stuff, maybe remastered, maybe a little bit of tweaking on these like lo-fi stuff. Yeah. But like it's, you know, his career was so short and he seemed like he was yeah. putting out material at such a frenetic pace that like the kinds of vaults that an artist like... Like Nirvana. like Nirvana or like Hendrix had just isn't yeah. going to happen again in the future no, because right. no artist was so ever, much more transparency. Yeah, no artist would ever be sitting on that much material. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more transparency. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Well, I think that like another kind of posthumous album that we haven't touched on that maybe like wrap up the show is kind of the posthumous album that was fully 
or mostly like 95% done and like kind of like ready to go and had a release date and then the artist died. And I think that prior to Pop Smoke, the sort of one example of that and there's a and there's a weird connection between pop smoke is is this the and, and this album is the uh self-titled sublime album which what like was ready to go and had been recorded and was basically being like mastered and there was like you know the 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 machine of the industry was was in full force about to like you know put them on tour and like have them open for like other artists and everything when when their their, their lead man bradley noel uh, died of an overdose uh, at at 28, and it, it, it and and so like it's such a weird album that like doesn't really have precedent, and you know and like, I guess we can talk about the Pop Smoke album as well because how does it how does a label go about marketing a record that's pretty much fucking done, but no one really knows who they are? Like at the, prior to that point, you know Sublime had like a local single Southern California, they had been on Warp tour. You know, so they had like a little bit of a buzz, but like no one really knew who they were. You I know, mean, like had- put it this way, like they didn't have the, the the video for what I got, which is the breakout single from that album. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The video is like all archival footage for the most part. Yeah. Like, like kind of clipped together and they don't have much archival footage because like the band just hadn't been <laughs> on video that much because they weren't anybody yeah yeah they were like nobody they're basically like a party band out of like long beach at that point kind of self-releasing records or like self you know releasing re- or releasing records on like really small independent labels to like small runs and yet <laughs> the album somehow i wouldn't put money on it succeeded and it like scored five radio singles sold over five million copies and won a fucking grammy within its first 18 months of release and so it's kind of interesting like how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> and I think, and like I'm interesting, and I think I'm interested in what you have, to, what you say about this. But you know, uh, I think we have to sort of like give some credit, a little bit of credit to the industry here, the record industry, and how it was marketed. Now, 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 don't get me wrong, right? Like I think, and you know, let me go off a little bit. I think much of Sublime's lasting legacy has to be clearly attributed to the band. And just like hitting the right cultural moment, you know, and with their their version of like genre fusing punk, you know. Uh, so like uh, listeners may not realize this, but actually on this podcast, we're enormous fans of Sublime <laughs> and their uh, Butthole Surfers produced third album. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. And like, you know, I think it, I mean, maybe just like sitting Fourth, on that for a minute. Count, I think it, won't pay the bills. Yeah, yeah, right. I think just like sitting on that for a minute, you know, I think it kind of, you know, the album you know it it, it 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 hit something culturally you know this sort of like period of like weird post reagan malaise and like sort of disillusion of a mostly white suburban life and it's like seedy underbelly and the sort of dissatisfaction of like that and like you know not having any kind of significant culture to attach to but also it's just kind of like a good album to like you know take bong rips to and like envision you know and but somehow it just like resonated even through the midwest you know and like through and 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 it's it's super interesting but like like i said i I hate to say it i have to give credit to the record company for bringing sort of that vision of a highly motivated and talented but also massive drug addict into focus in bradley noel and the band and i mean right down to the album art you know and like the black and white begonias and the old english tattoos i mean they like really nailed the sort of vision of like what that band was about and like it's interesting it continues and like we can talk about this a little more but it continues with like the live album that 
got put out shortly after when like clearly the record label was like oh shit like this is like a massive fucking hit maybe we should pay attention to this and if you listen to that live album it's fucking it, stand by your yeah, van it's trash i mean it's this like terrible recordings bradley's fucked up through most of it and yet like th- the industry was like no like that mess is sublime and that's what the fans fucking want they want the drunk you know bar band part of that band and like put that out and i think i think it's really fucking interesting that it was such a success so you know so the like one last point and i think this is really interesting and it really i think showcases maybe how whoever had a hand in the releasing of that self-titled album had a, a good vision that worked is that for i believe the 10 year anniversary of that album of the self-titled album they came out with a version that included the original track listing that Bradley wanted for that album. So basically like doing the really strange thing of like releasing this album, which has sold like millions and millions and millions and is like still popular and like giving it a, like a different track listing, like a different, like, and that's so, that's so strange. And to be honest with you, it like, it's not as it, good. It's, it's so <laughs> The track bad. listing is if not I, nearly I, as good. It opens with a cover of Bob Marley's Trenchtown Rock, <laughs> which is what Bradley wanted, which didn't even make the cut. So, I mean, like, this is all to say, this is not to take away anything from Sublime and, I, you know, I, like, cat's out of the bag. I'm a fan. But, like, there's something about the way the industry was able to sort of take their who they were as a band and like kind of give it a vision and like make it more crystal clear that ended up being a gigantic success. So, so, so for one, I would just say that for a 10th anniversary edition, uh, releasing the same material, but with a slightly different track order so that people will be into it is like a truly like, that's a gold level scam. Yeah, <laughs> um, lo- love it. Love it. Respect the hustle record industry. You're just like, Oh, we put a different, <laughs> We paid for this. We're not even. We're not. It's not even a different version. It's just a different order, and people will be like, "Oh, it's fascinating." But also playing on <laughs> our insecurities about being like, "Hey, wait a minute! Like, like, is this really truly the vision of the artist? You know, like, well, here's the vision of it. It wasn't as good." <laughs> so, so another, which is like a question, right? Which is like, I wonder if, in Sublime's case, having the band produce an album and then be functionally incapacitated. And therefore, not function. I mean, incapacitated. The, the lead songwriter in Guiding Light died. And so he couldn't ruin his own success in the way that he very well might have. Like, he wasn't able to, like, get too drunk to play the VMAs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but finally, I feel like the big takeaway that, that I'm hearing from you, right, is that if we want to, instead of saying that, like, records are a like a, a pure sold emanation from like artistic geniuses that like they go to like Mount mm-hmm. Olympus and like produce these things and it comes down right. through the crystal, cl- you know, if, we, if we're not <laughs> saying that and instead we're right. saying they're the product of these complicated set of interactions and contexts within this record industry, within their careers, within producers, within bandmates, within all of this. Right. Then like it also in a weird way does open up a space for like record companies to do their job and do a good job with it and produce work and the creativity of the record industry, which is like, in addition to being deeply exploitative, they also can 
it's a creative industry and like the industry is good at packaging shit right like like, really good at packaging shit and if we say the packaging is part of art now then like that's part of the art and so that some of these posthumous albums in this weird way are these like very obvious co-creations between record labels and artists who are no longer able to produce work because they're dead and that's a that there's kind of a category of its own i also think about i don't know like there's a bunch of these right Pearl by Janis Joplin is another classic example of like them doing a really good job down to like the cover art, you know, down to like the track listing, down to like what stuff they did overdubs of and what stuff they left totally like bedroom demo level raw. And so like if we think about these co-creations, it does. Yeah, it leaves open for this these weird in between categories of stuff that like kind of what you're saying before, like both uh, both like challenges and like reinforces our understanding of like what an album is and why it's important yeah and also yeah and the industry itself and how the and how it works and how they handle it you know and and it, it yeah and i think with the sublime self-title it was also kind of like a perfect storm right because like they whatever had just probably cut a really shitty late 90s early 2000s like record deal where like the record label has like full control and so there can't be that best the 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 label's like we are going to do this you know like this is like we have full control there's no band members or family or you know some other like small label like trying to like put out music that like for example the hendrix situation you know like they couldn't do that and so here was like a fully corporate label vision of this band's artistry and it like you know it worked and i mean obviously like the product itself had to be good you know the music had to be good and like had to like resonate you know it's not purely that but it's an example of it you know that an example of how you know if they choose to put on the white gloves and handle it with care you know they 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 can have a uh it can have a positive effect as well well guys i think that that's all from us this week I'm Sam Backer. I'm here with Saxon Baird. Theme music by Bird Language. Um, shouts to uh, official friend of the pod, David Turner, for being like, you guys should talk about posthumous records. <laughs> Please rate and review us and uh, subscribe to our newsletter at money4nothing.substack.com. Somebody texted me today asking how they subscribe, and they were like, oh, I typed in for F-O-R, but no, it's the number four. So make sure to subscribe for additional content and uh thoughts from us yeah and if you want to uh questions complaints posthumous records we didn't cover money for nothing podcast at gmail.com again that's money for like the number four nothing podcast at gmail.com um and we'll see you in two weeks 